One Hope Church. All right, good morning. Everybody get settled here a second. And um, this morning in our text, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 14. Before we get to that, got a couple things um, like to mention this morning. So on Friday morning, was driving to um, school with the kids. We're 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 leaving the driveway, and we're kind of, you know, we're we're at the leave it this minute. We might be on time. We'll leave a minute later. Gonna be late. And then my son, Michael, six years old, realizes he does not have his ice cream money. And since we had a clean, you know, cleaned up the car the other day, there's no there. Don't know of any coins. You know, in and I was like, Micah, I'm sorry, buddy. We've got, we just got to go, or we're going to be late. And as you can imagine, his response was not favorable towards um, that information. He was a little bit upset, a little bit sad. And so I explained to him, um, you know, we need to keep perspective. Like you're going to have a great day, you know, a great day at school. You're going to get to eat plenty of food. Um, we have, you know, we got swim practice today. Um, you know, mom is back. We're going to celebrate tonight. Mom is back from her um, three-hour, three-day um, tour um, that turned into a week on a boat. And so, you know, we've got a lot to be thankful for, buddy. And he's not having it. You know, he's 100% locked in on, you know, he doesn't have his quarters for ice cream and, and he's still upset about that and so then I go the other route because we have friends of ours um, in the Bahamas that literally lost everything like I'm like buddy listen we have friends that the roof was ripped off of their house waters came in destroyed everything outside and they can no longer live at their home and they actually have to leave their they're gonna have to leave their island they're trying to get off of their island and they're going to be away from their home for a long time until things get back to normal. And it's going to be a long time before things get back to normal. Perspective. Like, calm down about your ice cream. And, you know, he kind of, okay. You know, I mean, that's a lot to handle. You can argue with me if you want to about whether that's appropriate for a six-year-old. But, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in perspective. So later in the um, that rest of Friday, this this weekend, the Lord's kind of been like, let's see how your perspective is. Uh, so there's been some trials um, <laughs> and and things uh, to go through. So your prayers are appreciated, um, but I just want us to remember to keep that in mind, perspective, and particularly as followers of Jesus. Like, yes, the things we go through in life can be difficult, but they're temporary. Usually they're even temporary here on this earth. It's, a, it's, an, it's an inconvenience or it's a difficult thing to go through. It's a hard thing for our hearts um, to go through for a time, but even that here on the earth is often, you know, temporary. And we need to keep in mind 
what other people in the world endure, particularly those of us who, who um, have had to endure less than others. But we also we need to keep in mind the big picture of eternity. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we get to spend all of eternity with Jesus in glory, without the presence of sin, without the penalty of sin, without the power of sin. We get to live in in complete and utter glory for eternity. And so we need to keep in mind that the sufferings of this present world are fleeting. That the difficult trials that we go through, they are fleeting. They will pass. This too shall pass. Um, But at the same time, we acknowledge and what we experience in this world, and Jesus acknowledges that what we experience in this world will oftentimes be difficult and hard. So I'm not trying to minimize that this morning. I'm not trying to say it's not a big deal because a lot of things are a big deal. But in the grand scheme of eternity, we need to keep them in their proper perspective so they don't get bigger than they actually are. So we have some perspective. And that we're encouraged to continue on in the face of adversity. Um, this week I've been trying to be in, in contact with a, a brother in Christ in Central Asia uh, who I met on a trip over there who um, would be a key part kind of, of the local people, you know, the, the leader of, of, of a group, of a new church there. And, of course, the enemy wants to go after that person. And he was, he was beaten at his place of work for trying to share the love of Jesus with people. Um, there were other situations in that group of people that the enemy used to create you know, distrust um, in his heart, just kind of trouble from within and from without, and you know, just extremely discouraged. And he sent me, I reached out to him this week, and he sent me a message, and he said, you know, I feel all alone. Like, I feel all alone. And as I thought about that, that's a tough, you know, he's in a tough place. And his circumstances have been difficult, but now he's made some choices that have caused him to be more isolated than he needs to be. Because there are there those who there are people there who love him and would support him and would be there for him, but he has distanced himself. And Jesus told us that he is with us always, even to the end of this age. So right now, even though he's gone through more persecution than most of us will ever face. He needs to be reminded of the truth of the scripture. 
that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now that might be minor, that might be major. His is, you know, at least on the middle side of it from a historical perspective. But we need to encourage people and encourage our own hearts not to lose heart, not to lose hope, not to lose trust in Christ for our our day-to-day because God's grace is sufficient for us. And so I ask you to, to pray um, for my friend there. I had, it's just interesting, you know, I I've only was with him for a few days, but I had a deep sense that he would be tested, that he would suffer trial. And it has happened. Um, and just pray that he will come out strong on the other side. Um, so pray he has courage in the Lord and the Lord would lift him up and help him um, in this time you know there's, there's always a lot going on in our world whether we recognize it um, or not, whether we focus on it or not, whether we're distracted by everything else around us and our day to day life or not, there's still a lot going on there's a lot going on in our own city um And we need to be people of faith and people of prayer and people of courage and people who are willing to do hard things. People are willing to do hard things. Um, And this, we will go to our text this morning, but I, I just, I need to say that our culture has so far shrunken from hard things. that it has infected the church. And for those of us with children, the, one of the best things that we can do for our children, children is to instill in them the ability to do hard things. Because no matter of all the comforts that can be provided in life, it is impossible to eliminate every trial. It is impossible to eliminate tragedy. Until Christ returns, it is impossible to eliminate death and human suffering. And so if we do not raise up, like have in us and raise up in our children an ability to endure hard things, then we fail them. And so we have to be reminded of that. As much as we love them and don't want them to endure anything hard, they will indeed endure things that are hard. And the question is whether we've prepared them for that or not. So may we be encouraged towards that this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll come into 2 Samuel chapter 14. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. Thank you for your word and your goodness to us. We thank you that, God, you are good, you are holy, and you are just. Help us, we pray this morning to be encouraged by your word, to be strengthened in our spirit by your Holy Spirit. Help us to love you and help us to obey and help us to be brave. 
We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 14, let me give just a recap from last week, chapter 13. So we saw the terrible sin of Amnon against his half-sister Tamar. These are children of King David. They are children of King David um, by... He has, he has children by different wives, um, which, remember, we talked before, Genesis chapters 1 through 3, God's in, in intention for human beings. Um, you know, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not the three, not the four, not the five, but the two shall become one flesh. Um, and so David has brought unnecessary chaos into his life and into the nation of Israel by not obeying what God had said to begin with. Um, he should have been content where he was, but then we also know his awful sin concerning um, Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And from that, he has lost his moral um, authority. And we're going to see the continued repercussions of that. So, um, in chapter 13, Amnon committed a terrible sin against his half-sister Tamar. Tamar was the full sister of Absalom. Absalom waited a full two years before taking revenge on Amnon and has his servants strike him dead. Absalom then flees, flees to Geshur. Um, we didn't talk about this last week, but it, it made sense for Absalom to, to flee from Geshur because his grandfather on his mother's side was Talma, king of Geshur. So he's basically going to his grandfather's kingdom. You know, grandfather on his mother's side goes to that kingdom to stay there because that's a place of refuge and a place of safety. Even if um, David wanted to go and get him, it would be difficult um, both practically and politically, because through that marriage, there's an alliance. He, and, and this is one of the key lessons that we can learn from this. The reason, one reason David took these wives from different you know, places is because those, that was the way and has been the way for you know, many, many generations. It's only a modern phenomenon. It still happens in some places, but it's only a modern phenomenon that you wouldn't have people being married for political alliances, for powerful people to marry outside of those purposes. Um, it still does happen today, but in our culture, in our political system, um, it's not as um, prevalent. But here, these marriages are arranged for, for political protection. Because when there's an, a marriage alliance, then to then fight against that person means you're fighting against people you are now related to. And that makes things a little more difficult. So in this time, historical context, this was a very common thing to do. And David went along with that and did that same type of thing, which is not good. Because he should have trusted that the Lord would protect him and, his, and the kingdom of Israel without making those sorts of compromises on a moral and ethical level. 
But here's the reality of it, folks. It's easy to point at David in this situation because we understand the historical context. We understand what the Bible had said was true and right. And we can say, David, that was a mistake. But the real question for us today is not what David did for expediency. The real question is what do we do for expediency? What do you and I do in our daily lives that we do culturally because that is the easy thing to do versus it is a thing that God wants us to do. So we need to examine our own hearts and our own lives and say, are we, you know, what cultural compromises are we making that are contrary to God's way and the word of God? That's the way that the lesson makes sense to us. If we regulate it to, oh, well, those were, you know, that's what David did and those were his mistakes and we don't think further than that, then we aren't taking advantage of the opportunity that the scripture is giving us. Because I would argue that in in pretty much every chapter of scripture, there's an opportunity for us to examine our own hearts in relation to, to the lesson. So in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined toward Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days. Then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Then the words of Tekoa spoke to the king. She fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Truly I am a widow, for my husband is dead. Your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to separate them. So one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family has risen against your maidservant, and they say, Hand over the one who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and destroy the heir also. They will extinguish my coal which is left, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, O my lord, the king, the iniquity is on me and on my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. So the king said, Whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you any more. And then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy. Otherwise they will destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Let's stop there for a minute. So we have, you know, what's going on here. So Joab, he senses that that David um, wants to be reconciled to his son Absalom, but you know, doesn't feel that he can, you know, on a practical, you know, political level, um, concerning, you know, with what Absalom has done. Because uh, remember, as we talked about last week, what Absalom did in having Amnon struck down was. You know, Amnon deserved what he got, but the way Absalom went about getting justice was not just. And so now he has broken the law in how he has 
you know, sought vengeance. Um, he did not handle things in the, in the proper way, but we also understand he was tired of waiting for his father, the king, to give justice to Amnon as Amnon deserved. Amnon was you know, the firstborn son, and David was hesitant to, to punish him as he deserved. So Absalom get tired of what, got tired of waiting and struck, had his brother struck down. Now, Joab senses this, and he gives this, he has this woman um, put on mourning clothes and, and use this argumentation. Now, what's interesting here um, is that this woman tells a similar story to what happened with David's two sons, but it's not directly equivalent. Okay, there are key differences. And when people are bringing a case to you, you I mean, we need to be wise and, and look for what it truly is the same here, but what also is, is different. Because in her story, her two brothers are in a field together. They get in an argument. They get into a, you know, a wrestling match, a, a fight, and one of them strikes the other. Well, that's not what happened with Amnon and Absalom. There was two years of plotting, of waiting for the right opportunity. See, in her story, it's not premeditated. In, in the story of, of Amnon and Absalom, it's premeditated. In the one story, they are in a fight together, mano y mano, and one strikes the other. In this scene that we, we saw in chapter 13 is, you know, they're there at a, at a festival and Amnon is struck down by Absalom's men when he gives a command. It's not one-on-one. It's many against one. There's no chance for Amnon. It's, not a, it's by all definition not a fair fight. And so... It's not the same thing, but this woman uses this argumentation. She's a, a widow. These are her two sons. You know, she gains sympathy for the situation, for the one who struck the other. Because she's saying, you know, the, and, and understand the context here. These other relatives are saying, bring forth your other son so that he can be punished, so that he can be executed. But what's going to be the result of that? When she dies as the widow, the inheritance is all going to go to those relatives. So she's, what she is claiming is they're not really seeking justice. They just want you know, our family's land and house and possessions. They're just being greedy. That's her argument. That they're seeking, they say they're seeking justice, but they're, but they're not. And so then, you know, when he says, when David says, well, I'll, you know, basically he's asking for time. He's like, go to your home and I'll send word concerning you. And so he, he's going to take some time to think about it. But then when she pleads and says, let the guilt be on me. The heartstrings. She pulls on the heartstrings of David and gains sympathy. We need to be careful She's manipulating the situation, right? We need to be careful that we don't do that with people. That we don't, you know, go and 
pull on the heartstrings in order to make our case better than it is. We also need to be aware when people are doing that to us. I mean, our children will certainly do that to us. Our children will fake cry. Now, usually, and, and I'm just going to tell you the truth here, usually as fathers, I, I mean, I'm, I, you know, unless it's real obvious, I really think those are real tears. My wife real quick recognizes, are you being played? She recognizes that I'm being played quicker than I realize I'm being played. I'll tell you that. But those fake tears, you know, we got we to gotta watch out for that. And that doesn't just happen with our, our children. That happens in the world as well. We, you are going to pull out your heartstrings. And they'll say anything to get you to agree. We need to watch out for that. We need to be wise. So then, verse 12, we have the real story. Then the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. Then the woman said, Why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring back his banished one. For he will surely die. For we will surely die, and are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Now the reason I have come to speak this word to my lord the king is that the people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, let me now speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. Then your maidservant said, Please let the word of my Lord the King be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord the King to discern good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. So now, in this next scene, she, now she tells you know, what she's really, you know, the point of why she came. But yet, she doesn't say what I told you was a parable. Right? She's still holding. Yeah, in, in, verse, in verse 16, I mean, she's still holding that, that what she has said is true. And so we need to have discernment. We, uh, discern as, as we understand, you know, the things that she says, some of the things she says are, are true and are, are true no matter who says them. Some of the things she says are half-truths. Some of the things she says, like about her sons, are not true at all. It's fictional. And so, again, that's a principle as we read the scripture, you know, the context. Who is speaking? Who are they speaking to? Why are they speaking? What, what is God communicating to us, you know, through this? Every word of scripture is, is God-breathed, but not every word of scripture is equally applicable to your, to your life. Okay? So we have, we have to have discernment as we, as we read the scripture. So, basically, she acknowledges, she says, you know, there's, there's trouble in the land because you've banished your son. Now, perhaps, you know, she's saying that there are rumors of, of war. Perhaps Absalom comes with an army. You know, perhaps there's some conflict. But she wants... Because she's speaking on behalf of Joab, 
for David to bring Absalom back and to restore him. And she says this, she appeals to a couple of things. One, she appeals to God. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Well, that is true, and it is not true. Okay? What is, I mean, ultimately, now we have, in New Testament context, Jesus having come for us, right? We have, Jesus is, is the shepherd, he, he leaves the 99 and he goes and searches for the one. That Jesus does seek to bring those of us who have been banished, you know, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, God does seek to bring us into relationship with him. That is true. But to say that God does not take away life? Who is the one who sends those who are in continuous rebellion against God and who do not believe in the Son whom he sent into judgment? Is it not God? God does judge. You know, and, and I'm afraid we, we need to have more nuance. We need to have more understanding. You know, a lot of times, you know, you'll, you'll drive past a church building and there'll be a sign and it says, all are welcome. No. I'm sorry. Can, can we put an asterisk on that sign? That needs an asterisk on the all. You know, Jesus said, whosoever will come. What does that mean? It means whosoever will come and, and humble themselves and be repentant and believe in him, whosoever will. You know, that invitation is for all, whosoever will. But Jesus doesn't accept into his family those who, who reject him in the ultimate sense. Heaven is not open to all. All are welcome to repent, but those who do not repent are not welcome into heaven. That is reality. And so, I mean, I, I feel like I need to clarify that when I said we need an asterisk next to that all. Like, are you, Chet, are you saying that, that there are people who wouldn't be welcome to come in here this morning? Yes, absolutely. Anyone who intended harm to our children would not be welcome to come in our doors. Anyone that we knew was a wolf in sheep's clothing would not be welcome to come in. Anyone who would come in and teach a different doctrine and say, you know what, Jesus is one of many ways in order to enter the kingdom of God. I'm going to share with you some other ways that you, people can, you, know, you can enter the kingdom of God. That person would not be welcome. That all has an asterisk. Pretty big one. Now, person comes in and says, you know, I've been teaching some things in other places that I believe now are false and I need to hear the truth. And I'll just sit here and listen to the truth and I won't 
try to say what I've used to say in other places. Hey, that person's welcome. That person's welcome. You know, and I'll go a step further. Somebody comes in and says, you know what, I live in a lifestyle that's completely contrary to the word of God. I'm proud of it, and I want to come in and encourage everyone in this church to do the same. I want to, I want to lead everybody in that same style of life. No, that's not welcome. That person's not welcome. But the person who comes in and says, you know, I've been questioning how I've been living my life. I want to sit and listen. That person's welcome. Person's always welcome. But there are there are responsibilities that we have. But the purpose is always love. You know, we have a responsibility to care for and love those who God has entrusted us with. So there's that. We can't violate our responsibility towards loving those who God has entrusted us with. But there's also even love for those who would say, no, you're not welcome to come in. I'll be happy to have a conversation with you outside of this context. We can talk about these things. Because I love you and I want you to see the truth and I want you to repent and turn and believe in Jesus. Like, we can have that, I'll have that conversation. What I'm saying there is that there's a time and a place. There's a time and a place. Not all times are appropriate, not all places are appropriate. And we have to recognize that. But the purpose is always that people would repent and believe in Jesus, just like we repented and believed in Jesus, because without Jesus, who are we? We are sinful, lost, headed to hell. That's who I am without Jesus. I've been redeemed and saved by Jesus. He's the one who's changed me. I haven't, you know, I didn't become a good person and then grab hold of Jesus. That's not how it works. Jesus changes us. And we want people to be changed by Jesus. Even, you know, if you look in the scripture in Corinthians, when you know, the man in the room had, you know, had been sleeping with his mother-in-law and it was open, unrepentant sin, and the people are just there accepting it. And what does Paul tell them? He's like, you have to send that one out. But what was the purpose? The purpose is that that person would repent. And we need to understand that. You know, that there's a, there's a place for that in the family of God, in the church of God. We have responsibility. You know, can, you know and, and even in our own families, you know, if I've, if I've got a child and that child is doing things that are harmful for the formation of his or her character, are dangerous for other people, have a responsibility towards discipline. But what is the purpose of, of the discipline? Is it that we wouldn't have no relationship or no fellowship? Of course not. 
the, the purpose there is that there would be a change, right? But if I did nothing, would you call me loving? Would you call me caring or a good father? Of course not. You would say, you're just enabling bad behavior. You know, so there would be, you know, in our, in our um, work in our families and in the church and in our community and our society, we do have to draw lines at places and say, that's a line that cannot be crossed. And that's difficult to say in a cultural context where everything is relative, where the morality changes day by day, month by month, year by year, always tossed to and fro. And we're told not to be like that. We're, not to be, we're told not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, we're to stand strong and firm on Jesus. We have a responsibility towards that. But part of that is recognizing. Because people will talk a good game. And people will speak in half-truths. And so we need to recognize when something is all the way true, but the source is not reliable. Something is partway true, even from a reliable source. Something is a law. We need to examine and test things by the Word of God, by the truth of God and the character of God. Otherwise, we will buy whatever people are selling. And we need to be careful not to do that because here David is buying what this woman is selling. And she plays, she plays towards um, his, his attributes. Please, verse 17, please let the word of my Lord the King be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord the King to discern good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. You know, you need to be real careful when you're being flattered. When somebody, especially somebody you don't know that well, is flattering you, is giving you all sorts of praise, be careful. Be careful. They might not actually have your best interest at heart. They may have a different agenda. Young ladies, when some guy comes up and he is extremely complimentary, be thankful. But don't buy everything he's selling. Right? Be careful. Think about how well does this person know me? What is their real motivation? Be careful.
Fellas, be careful too. <laughs> be careful. Verse 18, And the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide anything from me that I am about to ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king please speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman replied, As your soul lives, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. In order to change the appearance of things, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all that is in the earth. So she tells him the truth there. Yes, it was Joab that was behind all this. You can also see the flattery continue because it's like, and please don't have me punished <laughs> for what I've participated in. Yes. So verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, we'll surely do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. So Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. And then Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, O my lord the king, and that the king has performed the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. So here, Joab gets what he wants, but he doesn't get it fully. And he understands in this that, yes, the king gave him what he asked for, but the king is still angry with. Though, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing. I think it's safe to say, when we have the whole context of the story, David loves Absalom and desperately desires to be in fellowship with him, and at the same time feels that he cannot because what of what Absalom has done, yet doesn't have the moral authority to actually punish him because of his own sins. It's complicated. Dysfunction is usually complicated. Dysfunctional relationships are, are, are not simple. They're by their nature are complicated, and this is a dysfunctional family at this point. And so, I believe that David actually does something here worse than just keeping Absalom and Gesher. Because now they have close proximity without intimacy. And that's always a dangerous thing. Proximity without intimacy. Historically, and um, people of, you know, this is just a side note, but when you have people of different ethnicities and they are close in proximity but do not have intimacy, you have suspicions and conflict and problems. Now, proximity with intimacy, and when I say intimacy, I mean fellowship, I mean knowing well, I mean close brotherly love. When you have proximity and intimacy, people can be very different and it work just fine. 
But when you have proximity without intimacy, you have problems. So this is the case here because he doesn't see the king's face. Now verse 25, it says, Now in all Israel, there is no one as handsome as Absalom. So highly praised, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. When he cut the hair off his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy for him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at, I'm going to put an asterisk here, 200 shekels by the king's weight. To Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. So let's just stop there for a minute. So we're given this description, 25 through 27, of Absalom, of his life, of his attributes. He was the most handsome person. Like, nobody would argue. Like, there's nobody that can be like, you know what, I'm just as handsome as Absalom is. Like, it wasn't a contest. It was like there was Absalom, and then there was, like, regular people. Okay? I mean, like, <laughs> you know, he was just on his own... He was on his own level. He was on his own level. And everybody saw it, and everybody praised him for it. Now, his hair, it's heavy. It's very heavy. Um, now, how heavy, that's debatable. Like your, Yours may say 200, it may say 20. Um, some people believe there's a manuscript difficulty there. The difference between 200, like 20 is uh, like a square missing one side. And 200 is just take away the line. So if that line got get erased in a manuscript, you would think 220, you know, 220 are very close um, in terms of, of how they would appear. But in any case, what I think the point is, don't get caught up in that. The point is, it was abnormal. It was unusual. We also need to remember they would put all sorts of things in their hair in terms of, you know, they, they anointed with oil, you know, regularly. They often would, especially someone like him, there would be like gold flakes, um, you know, put into the hair. And that also, you know, all the product adds weight. Okay, Absalom, he had a lot of he had a he had a whole lot of like hair, natural you know weight, but he also had a lot of product and a lot of glitter, uh, most likely, in this hair that would be like, wow, okay, th that dude is um, going to get your attention as he walks by. Okay, let's just let's just be real. So, um, I, I'm just gonna, I mean, on this one because you see. Here's the thing on this, when it comes to, to beauty. We all know. We all know, guys, like, we need to, we got to be very careful. Beautiful woman, but it's like, okay, that's right. Let me walk this direction. All right, here we go. But listen, ladies here also would have needed to been, like, check their hearts. And, and you know, and, and we need to talk about that. Karen and I were talking about this, this last night, Okay. You know, there's so many times where quote-unquote Christian ladies will put on their Facebook. Having seen, you know, movies or things intentionally to see a guy. Intentionally to see a guy without his shirt on. 
for that reason. Or, you know, Matthew McConaughey, now taking, you know, teaching classes at, at, in, you know, at Texas, University of Texas, and married women saying, well, it looks like I need to sign up for a class. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's wrong. And if the guy did it, he's going to be called what? Perverted? A pig? Everything else, right? Lady does it, oh, that's just good nature. That's just all in fun. Nah. It's called sin. <laughs> it's called sin. Women can sin just like men sin. Hey, and every time, every time there's an adultery, you know, it took two to tango. You know, it's not just the dudes. It's, it's not just the, uh, that there was a dude who sinned. We all understand there was a dude who sinned. Everybody gets that? There's a woman who also sinned. There's a woman who also sinned. Women can sin just like men do. Like, don't, don't get it twisted. All right. So anyway, he is somebody ladies would need to be careful as they walk by. But, he ha- but listen to this. He named his daughter the same name as his sister. And I think that in him, I mean, there is, there was a genuineness in him with his, with his care for his sister. Like Absalom has done wrong and he's, and sadly, if you know the story, he's going to do a lot more wrong. But there is also some good in him too. You know, it's, it, again, it's complicated. It's complicated. But you can imagine that he had the favor of the people because of his appearance because they know the story, because they know he had been banished and now he's been brought back. Like, he is a sympathetic hero in many ways. Especially in, in the mindset that the people would have. Not necessarily, for, again, from a godly perspective, but just from a natural human perspective. This is a man who defended his sister's honor and named his daughter after her. This is a man who... I mean, just look at him. Doesn't he look like a king? You can see it's easy to be sympathetic towards him. It says in verse 28, Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would, Joab would not come to him. So he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And therefore he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And Joab arose, came to Absalom at his house, and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there is iniquity in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab came to the king and told him, and he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So Absalom, another two years, 
We see Absalom is actually, um, he's not right in all that he does, but he's patient about the wrong that he does. He bides his time. And so now he's been two full years in Jerusalem, and he hasn't seen the king, and he sends for Joab a couple of times so he can send a message to the king, and Joab doesn't come. And so he goes, and he, he, he goes um, pretty extreme as he has Joab's barley field set on fire. That'll get somebody's attention. That is for sure. Um, and so he says his case, Joab is still sympathetic toward Absalom. I mean, think about it is, if he had been poor, he might not have forgiven it so quickly, but Joab was rich, and so it's just a barley field. You know, I mean, when you have a lot, you can lose a little. It's kind of the mentality there. But he goes and he makes the case, and King David uh, accepts him. Because King David does have a tender heart. He does. Um, and that's where this chapter ends. We're going to see in the near future that this is all a mistake. You know, and that we have to be really careful because sometimes we are put in situations where in our hearts, we want to be compassionate. We want to be kind. We want to give people the benefit of the doubt. But people, we also have to be wise. We have to be wise and caring and protecting of others that God has put in our care. You cannot assume that even when people say the right things or make claims that are astounding that their heart is right or that their intentions are right be wise seek the Lord for discernment what we don't see here is David going and seeking God's face and saying what should I do concerning my son what should I do concerning Absalom should I bring him back from Gesher should I bring him back into my house should I not we need to seek the Lord's wisdom because Absalom goes so far as to say, if I've been guilty, just kill me. Just kill me. You know, that's as far as you can go, right? Like that's as big a claim as you can make to your innocence. And he's willing to make it. But he knows his father. And he knows his father won't kill him. So he's able to say that without any fear of, of that actually happening. You know, again, be careful. Have discernment. Seek discernment. Ask the Lord for help. We all need it. Because we live in a world full of deceitful and crafty people who unfortunately do not have the good of others in mind. They have their own selfish desires in mind. Be careful in this world. But may the Lord help us in all those things and to examine our own hearts.
we need to be careful that when we are in situations of, of conflict, that we don't play games. That we don't, you know, make outlandish emotional statements to try to gain favor, you know, for our side. But that we are right in what we what we are asking for, but we're also right in our methods and in our approach. So that we can be pure before the Lord. And that's our goal. So may the Lord help us towards that. And this week, may God give us wisdom and discernment. May He give us courage. And may God help us to obey and to be brave. And may God help us to be people who share the love of Jesus with others. Do you want to share the love of Jesus with somebody this week? Share the good news of Christ? Pray and ask God for the opportunity and then pray for the boldness to take it when it's there. Most of God's people who claim to be true followers of Jesus have not shared their faith with somebody in the last six months. Oh, how our world would be different if we obeyed. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Part of following is fishing. There's been many a preacher who said that. I heard one on the radio here this morning that reminded me, following is fishing. Following is fishing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to obey you, to follow you, to fish. Help us to serve you with our whole hearts. Most of all, turn our hearts to you. And thank you for your great love and your goodness to us. We give you all the praise and glory this morning. As we take the bread in this cup this morning, we give you thanks, Jesus, because the cost of our salvation was great. Because you sought us when we were strangers. And that we were a people of no hope, that you gave us hope. Jesus, you are truly our one hope. Help us to live up to our name, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.